The Football Show on Off The Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more. Live on Sky Sports. I'm prepared to end it my can. Well, do it then. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should it be an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Oh. Now, as you know, Manchester United have hired their first permanent manager since Jose Mourinho. Eric Ten Hag spoke to the media at large yesterday. Rob Dawson of ESPN was there. We are going to chat to Rob later on in the show. In the meantime, to reflect on the Premier League season that was, to look ahead to the Champions League final, that will be. Very happy to say Damon Delaney has been nagged ceaselessly into uh, joining us. Sorry, I've been doing the nagging, but it's great to have you on. <laughs> that's that's absolutely not true, Joe. Um, I thought you'd lost my number there at one stage and <laughs> um, you didn't have any more use for me. Look, we appreciate you taking a break from your professional golf career to join us. <laughs> that's that's more accurate description, yeah. actually, Joe, yeah. <laughs> Those wedges won't sharpen themselves, you know. You've got to really put in the errors. <laughs> still, still bright out there, for God's sake. <laughs> it's funny as I was out there. <laughs> I have no doubt. I have no doubt. I've seen the results and they're scary. So, um, well, here's one which we don't have to start off on. Well, sorry, we will start off on it. We don't have to labour the point overly. I think uh, some people are, are thoroughly enjoying the 20 year look back at Saipan and others are saying, oh my God, no, I just can't go back there. You would have been 20, 21 years of age mm. when this happened. Big cork head in you. So I mm. presume it was all Roy. Um, what pro Roy is it? Yeah. No, um, I don't know really. I, I was a bit young at the time to understand uh, the, the nuances of a professional changing room. But I suppose with experience, um, you kind of understand two very very strong characters with a difference of opinion. And I suppose ultimately it was a shame that it couldn't have been sorted out, and we were missing our best player for 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 a World Cup that we um, could have maybe dreamt of of getting to a semi final of some description. Um, which would have been, I think, possible. Um, so it was just a shame that there was nobody able to mediate. There was no diplomacy. Both men were, were, were too um, strong in their opinions and their beliefs to, to, to wilt. Um, that might seem like a, a kind of a sketchy kind of summation of, of what happened. But ultimately, the, 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 the one of them or two of them or somebody should have been able to, to mediate and um, said, look, let's pick the bones out of it after the tournament. Right now, you know, nobody's going to come out of this looking good and ultimately it's the country that will end up suffering so um, yeah it was an awkward situation um, I suppose my abiding memory I think I think Colin Healy was called into the squad as a late replacement or no, or something like he was put on standby hmm. maybe Colin would be able to um, to kind of to, to, to verify that but I sort of remember that he was actually asked while Roy was missing you know to be put on standby but then the squad had to go in but I think Colin went on holidays that was my memory of it anyway Well I think when um, Roy initially said he was going home mm-hmm. then it was Healy and then Roy changed his mind to stay Yeah And then by the time Roy was definitely gone it was too late to bring in Healy Yeah exactly something like that that was yeah. my memory yeah yeah, yeah. Did you were you, in, were you in Cork for that summer? I was, yeah. I came home and I, I remember watching that World Cup. It was just the end of my um, end of one of my seasons in, in the UK. I was, as I said, I was still a young lad, um, 20 or 21 years yeah. of age. Um, and it was a fabulous World Cup. You know, it was absolutely brilliant. Oh, I remember nice. sitting home watching it in my house in Cork. Um, that great, um, that great Brazil team. And I remember Turkey having a great run. They got to the semi-final, if I remember correctly. They, yeah. they, they, they did a fabulous team. I remember I was at Leicester at the time and, and, and Muzzy is it got oh, called yeah. into the squad and Muzzy was a tremendous player I thought he was fabulous anyway 
Um, I remember coming back that pre-season and he had, um, I think Brazil beat them in the semi-final. I remember he had like Ronaldinho's um, shirt and stuff like that. So that was one of my memories of it. Yeah. Rivaldo's dive. Do you remember Rivaldo's dive? Yeah. He got yeah. hit uh, like on the tie and then grabbed his head. Yeah, over in the corner flag, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I presume, I mean, I know it's hard to tell, but I presume Cork was pretty much pro-Roy. He was setting standards. The rest of them couldn't meet those standards. They're all a disgrace. They accuse Roy of faking injury. Our boy's right. They're all wrong. I, I, I presume Cork must have been very pro-keen. That's a very um, accurate description again, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> of what and were of you what not, happened. no, were you not hopping mad going, yeah, Roy Keane's the greatest and the rest of them are chumps? Um, not, not particularly. No. Like, I mean, I just remember thinking, surely he'll go, I always thought he'd go back and yeah. then he did that interview on RTE um, and then it was pretty clear from his tone there that, that he never was going to go back or it was, you know, it was never kind of in his thoughts. But I, I don't know, I just always presumed that he would at some point get back in the squad and, and I said it was just a shame but I suppose I, didn't, I don't remember having any too strong too strong feelings on either way, to be honest, which I just I just thought it was a shame that he was missing. <laughs> How did you not have too strong feelings on it? You're like, come on. Yeah, yeah I don't know, Joe. I, wasn't, like, I, wasn't, I was 21 years of age. It wasn't the forefront of my thinking, you know. Jeez, I, um, I, was, I was 17. It was like the biggest thing that had ever happened in my life. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I just, I don't know, I just didn't really, <laughs> it was just, I was quite blasé about a lot of things back then. Fair enough, fair enough. In hindsight, at the time, I think uh, I was potentially a touch more pro-Roy. Mm-hmm. But the, the more you think about it, I just mm. grow up and get on with it and play. That's age, you know, age and maturity. Just, just, kind of just suck yeah. it up and play. Like this, this militancy about everything not being perfect. I Like I appreciate he'd had his fill of it since he was a teenager and it was another disgrace that the preparations were so cack-handed, of course. And you would have huge sympathy for that point of view. And everything he was saying was right. But I mean, it's the World Cup. I think if he had played that World Cup and retired for all those reasons after the World Cup, that might have been fair enough. You know, if he'd said, look, I've yeah. had my fill of this. But Yeah, and I think if you, if you spoke to him and, and, and if, if, you ever, if you ever did decide to give his real thoughts on it, he probably would say that it's probably something that I could imagine, I don't know this, but I, I imagine it's something that, like what you said, that he, he would end up regretting it, that maybe he should have climbed down a little bit and understood that the greater good was, was football and the greater good was the country and his own personal feelings could have been dealt with um, later in the day or in a different manner. Mm. Um, and I think he would have come out of it looking an awful lot more, like you said, if he if he, if he spoke about it afterwards, um, but done his best to try and change it from within. But I suppose then he'd say that he did do his best. So, yeah. look, we'll never know because no, there's so many no, no, different no. variations of a coming out stories that, that, that <clears> and it's I, happened. And, um, and I'm, so. I'm sure if McCarthy has his time over, one, he doesn't bring him to Saipan. I mean, that's the fatal flaw in the whole thing. Like, let, let Keane stay at home a bit longer, let him do his thing, let him get his body right, whatever he needs to do. And secondly, the, the interviews he, had, he did, which were the final straw and everybody's brought into the room and the interview's held up and you can't say this and, and then, you know, all hell breaks loose. And mm. I mean, in hindsight, you probably just do that one-on-one with Keane or else you don't do it at all. You just say, right, he's had another tantrum here. He's done this interview. This will be forgotten in four or five days I'm just going to get this guy to Japan. And, 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 and I suspect that's the one McCarthy probably regrets. But, you know, look, over the 20 years, who's had more fallings out with more people since? Not McCarthy. <laughs> yeah, I'll just stay away from that one. I thought you might. I thought you might. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'll tell you what it does do, though. 
it does show how childish footballers at large are and like how immature the industry is like that this all blew up like it's all so ridiculous isn't it I agree but it's, he was captain um, and I think as captain you, you know I've learned over the, the following 15 or 16 years or however, however long I played yeah. that you do have a certain amount of diplomacy um, when you're a senior player um, and you know kicking down doors and, and achieving what you want by force uh, isn't always possible. Sometimes you have to compromise. Sometimes you have to sit down and, and think of the greater good. And I'd certainly learned that later on in my career when mm. I kind of got to a, a, a position of of being in leadership groups and things like that, um, that you obviously want things to be a certain way. It's not always possible. Um, and there are clashes of opinions, but ultimately you always keep the team and the, the football club at the forefront of your mind. And every decision, you know, you might bluff or, or a lot of bluster and arguments with, 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 with people but ultimately it's the team is always in the back of your mind and you know when to, when to push and when to leave off and when to think of the greater good yes. um, and I just think that's something that maybe he, he, he Roy lacked in that in that, in that that moment but then again I suppose people say that Mick backed him into a corner so um, it's a difficult one yeah. uh, Joe Perfect storm uh, Man City they've been celebrating in uh, Manchester today Uh Jack Grealish is like taking the Freddie Flintoff Ashes 05 uh, mantle here and just <laughs> like, it's absolutely <laughs> do, you know, do you know what though right uh, my, when I saw it today I couldn't help but laugh right uh, people always complain that footballers are dull yeah. and boring yeah. with no personality you know the, <laughs> the, the, the goodness has been coached out of them we miss people like Paul Gascoigne um, enjoy him you know what I mean he's funny you know he's a good lad he seems to Probably not have a whole point between his two ears, but he's a, a likable character, and um, I'm pretty sure that if 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 Pep Guardiola felt that it was kind of detrimental to the team, I'm sure he would be kind of brought into line quickly. Mm. But he just seems to be a, a likable rogue, um, and it's quite funny. I know there's probably a lot of people online huffing and puffing about you know maturity and whatnot, but characters and people like him are, are, are going over the game, and I couldn't have yeah. it laugh because it reminded me of all the good stuff in football and the characters that I came across. Um, and funny things like that but for him to do it on national TV or, or it's quite funny to be fair and he deserves it he's won, he's won the league so fair play to him he's very endearing I think and his interview on the pitch was brilliant as well at the weekend where he, we talked about it last night with Pat Nevin so I won't go through it all again for people who've heard the podcast already but he was talking about just the pressure he feels not to lose the ball with Pep and he doesn't quite feel like himself and he's hoping to grow into that more. It was an amazingly interesting and open mm. interview. So just to play a clip if people aren't sure what we're talking about. So basically Grealish has been having a hell of a time and you know he's been doing things like he was uh, he was asked uh, early in the day is there anyone he wants to thank? And he said I want to thank everyone. The main person that I want to thank though is Bernardo Silva for coming off in the 68 minute because he was miles off it yesterday and everybody starts uh, roaring laughing at Bernardo Silva and then there's um, a point where uh, Maras is on stage with Kyle Walker and Maras is like who you know can anyone beat you in one-on-ones and Walker's like sort of shrugging his shoulders and Maras starts playing to the crowd and saying Mbappe and everyone says no Neymar no and Anna kind of goes and then Grealish grabs the mic and says me at Villa that's why Pep signed me. And it cuts to Pep, who starts roaring, laughing at this. Laughing almost in the way that suggests it's kind of true. There's a bit, <laughs> there's a bit of truth in this. Uh, and then this mightn't be audible without the subtitles. But here's a clip from uh, Bernardo Silva. They're up on a stage. Uh, I think this is only this afternoon. And he grabs uh, Grealish for a little uh, chat, obviously, after Grealish had slagged him earlier on. So see if you can make this out. This is Bernardo Silva and uh, very hoarse Jack Grealish. 
The main person that I want to thank is Bernardo Silva for coming off in the 70th minute because he was miles off it. Oh, entrance onto the stage as well before a bit more banter with his teammates. We have to take him off the pitch as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. What else is right now? How many runs? Number two. This is so good this season. Get him off the pitch. And number three, I know you say. Number three. Keep Jack really shot the fence. Well, it must have been a pinch yourself few days for Grealish after winning his first match. Okay, it's possibly the wrong clip there. Uh, you get the sense it's been, it's been a bit wild. So anyway, they've been having a good time. And now Grealish has just turned up with Wayne Lineker in Ibiza. That's where he is now. He somehow has landed and uh, he's having a good time. Uh, what are we saying about City then? So there is like a real intensity to this success four and five years. Uh, Pep is now level with Kenny Dogleash. He's one behind Busby. He's two behind Paisley. He's kind of shaping the way football uh, is played. There's no immediate end to this dominance, is there? Absolutely not, no. Um, they have the financial backing. They have the pull now um, because I'm pretty sure that Haaland, um, at, the, at the cut price that he was available for because of the clause in his contract, would have had his pick of, 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 of pretty much any team in world football and Man City managed to secure him because of Pep, because of their project, because of what they're doing there. Everything's in place for a, a sustained period of dominance for, for Manchester City. They'll keep adding to their squad. I know Jack Reed comes in for a little bit of criticism and people kind of ridicule him a little bit saying that he didn't play this year. I know it's going to sound crazy, but I almost kind of think that like, you know, they signed... Jack Grealish, knowing that he was a good player, but Pep has an idea of the type of football player that he can be. And it might not be too closely kind of linked to the player that he was at Villa, the off the cuff, enjoy yourself. You know, he was the most followed player in the Premier League at one stage at Villa. Um, I think Pep's going to mould him into kind of a replacement for Bernardo Silva. So that if Bernardo Silva does drop off or lose lose some of the, the prowess that he has, Jack Grealish will step right into it and that's the kind of where Manchester City are now the signing players for the future they sign that young player the young centre forward from from South America um, and obviously Haaland at the age that he is you know they're, they're, they're future proofing their team now I know people will say that's crazy spending 100 million quid to future proof your team but I think that's where they're at um, you know you know, I think there was something made there during the week but Ranić at Manchester United saying that he was amazed that they never planned for the, the departure of Matic. They signed a, a whole heap of players for, for 90 million quid and nothing for Matic. And I think that's what Manchester United maybe have lacked. They haven't been uh, thinking ahead two, three, four years down the line. If certain players kind of drop off in intensity, you know, who's going to be the next one in? And I think that's where Manchester City are right now, um, that they won't be caught short and they won't have to panic by um, somebody or pay way over the odds for somebody. They believe that Jack Grealish will develop into a 100 million pound player. I don't think that Pep maybe thought that he was worth 100 million at the time, mm. but Pep believes that they can turn him into a 100 million pound player. Um, that's my view on it, and I think he will do that as well. Mm. You know, Pep will absolutely drill Jack Grealish and get him and mould him to exactly what he wants to be. So, how does Erling Haaland fit into all this then? Oh, to, to the, the, the missing piece. I think we, we all thought the same a little bit last year with Chelsea when they signed Lukaku. That number nine up the top of the pitch, there was too often this year where they played with Gabriel Jesus and, and as good a player in all as he is, he's not a, a target man. He can't lead the line. Um, you know, he's, he's good at what he does. He's 
a tidy finisher. I think even in, 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 in the game against Real Madrid, the second leg, they moved them into the left wing and they moved forward and into the false nine. So we might see a lot less of that false number nine carry on. Um, and I think that Pep was kind of maybe doing his best to, to get through the season because they thought they were maybe going to get Ronaldo or, or Harry Kane. Mm. So um, I think that it probably is the missing piece um, in, in, in Man City's picture. Whether it's enough to get them the Champions League or not, I don't know um, because the Champions League could be decided you know, on way for thin margins. And um, we saw that with the, 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 the two quick fire goals that Real Madrid got. But look, it's the Holy Grail now. They're fairly well bunkered when it comes to Premier League titles, FA Cups and dominance and every record possible. So the Champions League is the one. Yeah. As for the Premier League as a whole, like at a glance, it's amazing. It's never been better. The title race was absolutely extraordinary. And everybody really enjoyed it and what a finale. And yet, you, you, like there, there is this slight nagging thought that in Jurgen Klopp Liverpool have found this like freak of nature one-off and almost he alone is driving on really the only competition that Man City are facing so you know were, were things not to be as perfect in the transfer market for Liverpool or were, were Klopp you know to, to lose energy or so, something to go a tiny bit awry there then Chelsea under new owners I mean they won't be spending in the same way you would presume as under Abramovich Manchester United are still years away from challenging like Liverpool in a way are masking probably the extent of City's dominance because Liverpool have been so brilliant and yeah. uh, that kind of needs to continue for the, the supposed root health of the Premier League because uh, otherwise we could have been talking about this as City's five in a row and this this whole project is really bad for the league yeah, absolutely. And and I think one other team you mentioned there, or we need to mention, is, is Newcastle. What's going to unfold there yeah. coming up the road? Um, because they seem to have or potentially the, 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 the same amount of funding that, that Manchester City are going to have, if not even greater. How quickly they move that train along will be really fascinating to watch. How quickly they, they can attract um, superstars. Obviously, European football will be a huge thing. So maybe they're maybe a year or two away yet. But I think in the long term future of Premier League, they will be there, thereabouts, in the same bracket as Manchester City. Um, Liverpool, I think, uh, are in such a good place on and off the pitch. You know, the Anfield Road stand is being done now. Uh, Anfield is going to be an amazing arena or an even better arena than what it is now. There seems to be complete harmony uh, between the manager and the, 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 the hierarchy above him in terms of director of football, ownership and, and whatever else is in between. Um, you know, Jurgen Klopp probably gives his profile of player that he wants uh, and, and they all set about um, finding it. And we've seen that with, with the likes of Jota and Diaz to come in, you know, and that's all about the profile that he wants, the type of player that he wants um, for certain positions. And they seem to be fulfilling every one of his needs. I do worry that Klopp is such a fierce, brightly burning candle. Yeah. Will it burn out a little yeah. bit? Maybe I know he left after after Dortmund. Um, I don't think so. I think that he, he genuinely loves the club and I think that there's, there's probably another couple of years in him yet. But you could imagine that when the crash comes, it will be will be pretty hard because he lives every moment of Liverpool Football Club. I mean, he really does. I could imagine that he doesn't get much personal time, probably doesn't sleep a whole pile. Um, and I think he's over every decision that's that's kind of made or involved in every decision anyway that's, that's, that that club makes. And I really do think that he's an, a, a kind of fireball or an intense fireball and you just wonder... Um, will that burn out? That will be the only worry for me with Liverpool. Otherwise, they're in such a, a good place. And if they were, if that was to happen and they were to fall back a touch, then the city dominance does become a little bit unhealthy for the league. Although, as you said, she's Newcastle. Uh, the, the analysis in Newcastle, it seems, is that they can stay within financial 
fair play type regulations and still spend 600 million mm. uh, over the summer, which is not pocket change. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly they're part of the conversation. You would think 600 million pretty quick. Do, is there a worry with that kind of money that you attract the wrong sort early on? Yeah, because you're not going to attract um, the right player because the player that's going to go there is going to go there for money. Yeah. Most most players will will want to go for Champions League level football. They'll want to go for for challenging for leagues. Um, now, if you go and sign a whole host of players, do I think Newcastle will challenge for the league next year? No, could they crash into the top four? Absolutely. Um, but you know, I think that's probably a year or two away mm. um, from them really dominating uh, but all those things I just said there about Jurgen Klopp and, and, and him burning out I think the same could be said for Pep Guardiola yes. um, you know because he's equally as intense just not in the same kind of brash or, or abrasive type of way I could imagine he sits up late at night as well just staring at a wall um, you know overthinking everything um, and 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 and, and that's why these guys are, are, are the elite is because they think so much about it but you know it's almost like a grandmaster chess player you know eventually they can't or it's possible they could go mad with their own thoughts um, so I think Pep is, is, is in danger of that as well and then obviously Manchester City have a, a decision to make because that whole club has been made for Pep Guardiola everything about Manchester City is shaped for Pep Guardiola they did that before he even came in as manager they employed all his backroom ta- staff and his the hierarchy there remember Tichy Bergestein and, and everyone yeah. was brought in for him so you know they will have a huge decision to make there and if they get that wrong and they kind of don't stick to the same blueprint or get someone of the similar ilk then that could go wrong very very quickly as well so true um, that's kind of what I think of that Champions League final this is going to be good yeah. I think we can safely say Liverpool against Real Madrid do Liverpool look especially tired to you or am I have I just got this into my head and now I'm uh, there's confirmation bias at play every time I see them um, I think they probably are uh, lagging a little bit I mean to be fighting on, on all four fronts like they have done um, but I think a one-off game at the Champions League final tiredness goes the window It'll, adrenaline will get those players right. through that game right. um, I think that, that you know that the occasion you know from as soon as they leave Liverpool to, to, to arrive in the whole city will be you know their ears will be picked up and they'll be ready to go of course so I don't think fatigue will be a huge issue I think you know coming down the line in the Premier League they're playing every three days um, but they've had a nice long break now to go into this the manager can give the players some time off they can spend some time together maybe go to a little a retreat together a little bit of rejuvenation and and, and, um, and obviously then the focus will be on that game so don't worry uh, about Liverpool delivering the performance that they're capable of I think they can, they can. And the worry is obviously the, the team playing them wide across from them because those guys just don't seem to know when they're dead. Mm. Um, and I think even if we were 2 0 up with 10 minutes to go, you know, no one would be turning off the TV thinking that the foregone conclusion. So it's going to be a tricky night for them mentally and physically, and, and, and of course, emotionally as well, playing against this team. I can't think of another team like Madrid. I know Manchester United in that treble era came back from the dead a few times, but mm. this Madrid team, unlike that United team, go into almost all these matches as second favourite and and uh, just keep coming back they seem to need zero momentum in a game to score it's oh, it's crazy like I mean that Manchester City game nothing looked out of place everything was going great the substitutions were good Manchester City were in a good place and just bang out of nothing and then again and they did it against Chelsea as well they did it against, against PSG um, I don't know. I just think it's something that's built into them, led by Karim Benzema. Um, for whatever reason, the substitutions he makes just seems to breathe life into it. And at some point, they must have to look at that and go, you know, Camavinga coming on mm. um, is a huge uh, input for them in the middle of midfield. I know the trio, the famous trio of of Casemiro, Cruz and Modric, you know, um, 
once they're off the pitch and they get on the young guys, there seems to be a rejuvenation and energy that comes into that Real Madrid team. And they just have a belief now, and that comes from, what was it, 13 Champions League titles yeah. that they have now, or European titles, and, and they do see themselves as the kingpins of, of Europe and the, the biggest team in Europe. So that plays a huge part too. When you look at an Ancelotti team, are they always brilliantly set up? Is this guy a really underrated manager? Because he doesn't, he, you know, we, we've made this point, it's becoming a cliche at this stage, but you ask anyone who are the great European managers of the last decade and they'll give you Klopp and they'll give you Guardioli and they'll, they'll give you all of those names and uh, Ancelotti will be forgotten somewhere in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I'm not sure um, that that's fair because I think he's obviously a, a top-class manager. I think he's just a little bit more under the radar, a little bit more subdued than the other ones. You know, um, his demeanour as well. You know, he's probably the only guy that you know you very rarely see him smile. He turns around to his bench. He always looks whether they're winning two nil or losing two nil. He looks the exact same. Just stood there in his trench coat on the touchline. Um, but clearly he's tactically um, aware. But I'd say, I think what makes him brilliant is his in-game decision-making. Um, I think that he's a, he's a great way to stay calm and analyse a game and analyse what's happening right. and realise, thinking live, what's happening with, with the opposition and, and what's the best way for us to get back into this game. So I think that's his, his skill, his ability to, to, to see the picture as clearly as what he does while the storm has actually taken place around him. Do you know, it's funny as you say that, I saw it on Twitter not so long ago, against Man City he was consulting with the senior players who'd been taken off about what the next mm. substitution should be which mm. real humility on his part to do that but I guess appreciating they'd have a sense of what was going on out there so yeah look his record's outstanding do you have a strong sense either way of who wins in Paris or is this flick of a coin stuff no I think I think Liverpool are, are favourites I really do I know I thought after Chelsea PSG and, and Man City <laughs> yeah. that like you know I think <laughs> I'm going to go way out on the limb here John I'm going to say if Liverpool get their nose in front I don't think they'll be as susceptible um, a fourth time to a fourth team to to, to, to to give it up I think Liverpool will score goals because I don't think Real Madrid are, are fantastic at the back so mm. I think Liverpool will score goals and I think that a lot of Klopp's week will be speaking about you know, hypothetical situations if we get in this position, almost programming the players' minds. You know, if there's 10 minutes to go and we're 1 0 up, 2 0 up, 3 0 up, you know, these are the things we have to do. They'll probably have certain routines, certain leaders. Van Dyke will obviously have certain things to say at that point just to refocus everybody's mind. So I'd say there'll be an awful lot of sports psychology going on at Liverpool, you know, for certain scenarios with 10 minutes to play when we look at the clock and we're winning. Uh, maybe a word they'll have a use a trigger word for them you know for everybody to refocus and understand um, because sometimes when you tune a lot you can't snatch at a result like that mm. and the occasion can get on top of you but I think that's the bulk of Liverpool's work will be that this week well it should be an amazing occasion just a last question I remember we spoke to you at the start of the season about Crystal Palace mm. and uh, we got a great response you, you painted this very interesting picture of what Steve Parrish is trying to do uh, Crystal Palace are trying to dig more into the South London catchment area they're bringing their academy up to the very top rating and they're hoping to become more self-sufficient and uh, the worry when we spoke was Patrick Vieira slightly unknown at Premier League level and you know they, what kind of team would he produce they finished in 13th they play more attractive football more possession based football it's been I have to say from Vieira's point of view it's been really impressive Yes, it's been it's been a good season. Um, you know, maybe they were hoping for a little bit more, but that might be touch greedy. Um, I know some fans were saying that. Um, you know, I think they finished on the same amount of points. I think if I'm, if I'm right in saying as right. what they did last year. Um, but I think now that the ceiling has been removed 
for Crystal Palace because, you know, to get 48 points last year under Roy Hodgson with the methods that were employed, that was probably the most of what you were going to get. I think that was the limit. They kind of hit the hit the, the rev limiter there, so to speak. But I think now that that's been taken away and, and, and the, the scope for, for progress or the, the avenue for progress is wide open. And I think now they can just add to a squad. They've got a really good profile of player there now. I know Wilfred Zaha is making noises about leaving again which I don't think would be uh, as catastrophic as what it would have been in years gone by so because they've replaced him with young Olise and Eberiche Eze um, two players very very similar to Zaha younger in profile so that I think if Wilfred did um, kick up enough of a fuss and the club received an offer that they deemed uh, worthy of a 30 year old who they've gotten 13, 14, 15 years out of, which has been playing first-team football since 16 years of age. Mm. Um, I think they've moved away from that dependency on him now, so they're not as kind of beholden to him as what they once were. So I think Vieira deserves not an awful lot of credit for that. And uh, you obviously look at the profile of players going off after no players that can ascend in value. And if anybody wants to come and take them, they've got to pay a pretty penny for them. Mm. Um, so I think all is well at Crystal Palace at the moment. Um, and I think they're looking forward to a new season. I, I listened to Vieira's interview after the game, the last game of the season. He's already talking about next season, you know, improving, getting better. And I think that the scope for that now is there, whereas previously... Uh, I don't think you know there was much room for improvement unless you got a, a fluky set of circumstances and, and, and things really went your way, but you're relying on luck there as opposed to anything else. So, look, I think all around everyone will go in have a good summer. Uh, the recruitment will be good over the summer and um, they look forward to having another good year. Text in to finish up on. Damien's top three players of the Premier League season. Ooh, good one, that. Uh, De Bruyne. Is he? Are, are you doing a descending order here, or are these first to mind? He's, he's first, absolutely. He's first, I think okay. he's been, yeah, he's been he's been brilliant. Um, I think, uh, I suppose Premier League. I suppose you probably have to. Who do we say out of Liverpool? Really, if it's done really well, um, you put me on the spot there. No, I don't really think about this. Um, De Bruyne really is the main man, and then obviously um, take a pick of any of the Liverpool players. Diaz has done really well when he came in. He was a bolt in the arm. Um, of what Liverpool really needed um, and everybody wants to see a player walk through the door in January and hit the ground running and just kind of enthusiast, add some enthusiasm to the place and um, Jesus, I don't know Joe to be honest, De Bruyne really is the one that stands out Yeah, straight to De Bruyne I think he's scored 15 goals this season Mm. I suppose, like I mean, Premier the thing Premier. is, when I when when you when you ask me for these things, I give, and then all of a sudden everyone's like, "Oh, well, you've got about so and so," but but in about twenty minutes' time, when I come off there, I'll, I'll come back on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had a chance to really think about it. So, um, hey, De listen, Bruyne, De Bruyne is a perfectly respectable answer. Yeah. He's a joy to watch. Yeah, he's something else. In fairness, yeah, jeez, um, and uh, God, I'm trying to think there now on my feet. Anyway, let's. I, well, I don't Sal- know. Salah was golden boot winner with Kane, wasn't he? Yeah, son. There you go. There's son. another one. So, like, yeah. finally not underrated. I would say this year's son. This is the first year he's probably not underrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, you know, Harry Kane had his moments this year, but he wasn't as as dominant or as as um, I suppose as, as as kind of full on as what he normally is. Yeah. And Son certainly picked up that mantle. Really, Harry Kane did reasonably well this year, but he wasn't the usual week in week out. Harry Kane he had a slow start this year. Yeah. Um, so he's been good I, you know who I really liked as well like Kulisevsky at, at Tottenham I've watched uh, a lot of Tottenham recently and there's something about him I like him an awful lot his direct running and he's an Antonio Conte type player and he was a good find for them well, really really good find. between him and Bentacor I mean mm-hmm. talk about being surgical and precise going getting what you need the word is they're going to give Conte 
Well, I don't know how much of it they'll give him, but there's been a 150 million generated uh, with an investment. And the sense is they're going to give him cash over the summer. So uh, Spurs could be interesting next year. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just hope they give him the money and get out of his way. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much. Uh, very much appreciated. And enjoy the Champions League final. And we'll, we'll chat when we chat. Dame Delaney, thank you. Thanks, lads. Cheers. Dame Delaney with us there live on the line. Our football show coverage brought to you by Sky. Watch every UEFA Champions League and Europa League match live on BT Sport this season. As mentioned at the top of the football show, Eric Ten Hag gave his first press conference as Manchester United manager yesterday. We're going to chat to Rob Dawson of ESPN who's there. I think for Munster, for them in order to get a performance and a result, they need to concentrate on how well they played over the last eight weeks since that kind of post Six Nations win. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neil Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. Now welcome back. Rob Dawson of ESPN is with us in the line. Hi Rob. Hiya, how are you doing? Very well, thanks for the time. So uh, it's quite something, isn't it? Manchester United's first permanent manager unveiled since Jose Mourinho. Well, no, we've had Ole Gunnar Solskjaer um, uh, in between. Um, he wasn't hired as permanent, though. Permanent, no, he, um, here to stay. He, well, he was. I mean, he, he was caretaker initially, wasn't he? And then we had a big unveiling when, yeah, as it, when he was appointed permanent permanent manager. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's... You'd, you'd heard him interviewed before as Manchester United manager is, is more Yeah, important. I mean, it's, it is a bit of a, it is a different situation. Um, you know, we, we hadn't heard him talk about the Man United job. You know, he, he was appointed or the, the announcement came um, a few weeks ago, but he was he was focused on Ajax. He had a, a title to win in, in Holland and, and didn't want to give any interviews, didn't even do MUTV, um, which is rare, really, um, when they appoint a new manager. So, yeah, Monday was the first chance to to really get to, to hear from him um, both on club channels and, and in a press conference um, and it was interesting um, you know it, it was great to sit in front of him for, for the first time and, and hear what he had to say What was your overall sense of him as a person? Uh, yeah I mean I, th- I was impressed um, to be honest I thought he handled it quite well I mean it, it can be very daunting walking into a room of, of reporters that you don't know um, obviously he's, he's conducting the, the press conference in a, in a language that's not his primary language obviously um, which is, is difficult for, for anyone um, but I thought he was very self-assured he, he didn't dodge any questions he answered everything um, it came across that he, he had a plan um, of what he wants to change what he wants to do at Man United he didn't divulge too many details about that. He was he was very keen to sort of suggest that that plan is for him right now, and that, that we would learn as as he goes along what that is. Um, I thought he handled it very well. Um, I think most United fans, from the reaction I've seen, have been quite impressed by by what they saw on Monday. Mm. On the self-assured point, he was even asked about Ronaldo and then there was a follow-up question and he certainly wasn't so intimidated by this room of uh, journalists that he wasn't afraid to say, well, I'm going to talk, about, I'm going to, talk to Ronaldo about that before you. <laughs> and, and he had a couple of moments like that, you know, started a few sentences with, as I've already said. Yeah, quite. I mean, and that's, you know, he's well within his rights to do that. I mean, he did get asked a couple of, of difficult questions. The, the Ronaldo one is going to be a big issue. He was asked about Ralph Radnick, about that consultancy. Um, and instead of kind of, you know, just playing along a little bit, he said, well, that's that's a decision that the club have made. He, he kind of distanced himself a little bit from that Radnick consultancy. He was asked about Louis van Gaal, obviously someone that that he um, he admires quite a lot, having, having um, coached in Holland 
Uh, you know, Van Hal said that, that if he had advised Ten Hag, he would advise him to take a different job. But um, Ten Hag took that question head on and, and was very clear that, you know, while he took Louis Van Hal's advice and, and he appreciated that time that he, he gave him, that, that the phrase he used was that he would draw his own line, essentially that he would do it his own way, that he's listened to the opinions of other people, but um, he made his own mind up. He took the decision to, to take the job on his own um, and, he's, and he's confident in that. And I think that's great. Um, you know, he's going to need that when he, when he um, finally gets to see the players and starts taking training and starts getting used to these matches because um, it is a big job. It's a, it's a huge job that awaits him at Old Trafford and, and he will need to put his own stamp on it. Mm. What is your sense of Ralph Rangnick standing at the club? I, I thought it was very telling yesterday that that Ten Hag seemed to distance himself from that. Um, you know, a lot of United fans will have appreciated Ralph Rangnick being very honest in his press conferences um, you know, I think a lot of United fans have listened to him and thought that you know people need to need, have needed to say these these kind of things for years now. Um, you know about the deficiencies behind the scenes and also on the field. Um, I just thought it was interesting that he was asked directly yesterday, would he would would he like to work with with Radnick? Would, is it something that he was looking forward to? And the simple answer was that's that's for the club. Yeah. Um, there was no beating around the bush with that. It was simply that it was a club decision to appoint him as a, a consultant. But ultimately, going forward, the, the decisions will be made by by Ten Hag. He will be the one that um, that bears the brunt of the criticism if those decisions go wrong, um, and should get the praise if those goes right. So, um, no, it's only right that he stands up and says that the, the book stops with me. Yeah, I think it's become very apparent very early that the Ralph Rangnick two-year consultancy business is just yet another odd Manchester United decision that's not going to be followed through on. Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, it was odd at the time. Um, you know, we were told initially that while United were quite keen on Ralph Radnick, that he had kind of distanced himself a little bit from the caretaker job because he had a job in Moscow that um, that he was quite enjoying. It was only when this two-year consultancy became um, an issue that Radnick then signed on. It was obviously the tipping point for him to take the job initially anyway. Um, you know, as time has gone on, if Randy had got great results, then you could understand why United would want to keep him around. Mm. Um, but it hasn't gone well. The experiment or whatever it was hasn't gone well, and the results haven't improved. And it's and it's been a disaster, really, from a coaching standpoint. Um, and it and it leaves the new manager, whoever it was, if it was Pochettino or Ten Hag or anyone, in a very difficult position. In that you've got a manager who has coached the team and is then going to move up. Um, upstairs and make these decisions or help make decisions or even just consult on decisions, it leaves a very, very awkward dynamic. Um, and I think it says everything really that United don't seem particularly bothered that Radnick has gone and taken that Austria job because um, if they really wanted him on board, um, you know, consulting for them on a regular basis, yeah. you wouldn't let your, that, that guy go and, and take a, a national team manager's job because that takes enough time as it is. Rob, you said he was asked about Ronaldo. His answer there was pretty clear cut. Yeah, and, and you know, again, it's, it's one of the key issues because it's Ronaldo. Um, he was asked directly, was Ronaldo part of his plans? And he said yes. And he said he was asked again, what do you think he could bring? And he said goals, which you know, seems fairly obvious. But um, it was a talking point because the, the football that Ten Hag wants to play, you know, might not necessarily suit what you get from Ronaldo. And, and Ralph Ramnick has, has touched on that a little bit himself. But ultimately. There's so many deficiencies in that squad that you look at a guy like Ronaldo who's actually delivering what he says he can do, scoring goals, and you can't really take him out. There are so many other problems with that squad that I think for now Ten Hag probably thinks that you just leave that well alone and deal with that later. Do we have any sense, does Ten Hag have a big budget to work with this summer? I don't think it's it's overly massive. It'll be around the same as United have operated with, with the, for the last few years. Um, you know, they get they tend to to work to a, a plan of around about 100 million, 150 million net spend. Um, obviously, it will change depending on on who who is able to be sold. 
Um, you know, Ralph Randnick said a couple of weeks ago after the Liverpool game that he thought that they could do with about 10 new players. Well, you know, since then, United behind the scenes have distanced themselves from that and said, you know, the likelihood of, of these massive changes is quite unlikely. Usually every summer, they work to a plan of, of bringing in three new players and letting three go. Now, that may change this summer because you've got a lot of players who are out of contract, the likes of Pogba, Lingard, um, Mata, Matic has already said that he's leaving. So there may be one or two more than, than the three that we're used to, but it certainly won't be a huge overhaul of, of 10 players in, 10 players out. Um, and, and again, it won't be a £500 million spend because United just aren't capable of doing that. There is money to spend on new players, but it, it certainly won't be this, this huge overhaul where we see a, you know, almost an entirely new squad arrive at Old Trafford in the summer. Uh, the next point comes with the massive acknowledgement that talking to the press is not an especially relevant aspect to how Manchester United are going to do under Ten Hag. And actually, Ralph Rangnick, I thought, was a very good media performer. Uh, maybe it was, the be- in some respects, the best aspect of his tenure. Every time he spoke, you thought, God, he's spoken very well there and very commanding and likeable. Uh, Ten Hag, I wouldn't say, brought that presence as such and I think part of the problem is he's not speaking in his first language for sure. I brought this up because I was listening to Danny Murphy this morning or the other morning with uh, Jim White and Sam Jordan and, and he was sort of saying you know he was giving the impression like players will watch this and it was pretty underwhelming if you compare it to some of the big name arrivals like a Klopp or all the way back to Mourinho and, and very commanding press conferences so just for people who haven't heard uh, the Ten Hag press conference here for instance you know you think this is, is big unveiling and this is this is literally the first question he's asked and here's his answer uh, within and, and I'll chat to you about it afterwards so here's uh, the opening question of the Ten Hag press conference You've been preparing for this job for a week or so now in, in England you, you were at the Crystal Palace match yesterday what are your first thoughts on what you're taking on and what areas have you pinpointed that need improvement? Uh, I uh, make analyze, uh, and I think we are in the lead of the process now uh, with this with this start. Uh, before season starts, we have now a couple of weeks of break. Um, uh, I make, so I make analyze, I observe, and I will set of course conclusions. Uh, but I keep it now for myself. Uh, it's in uh, the previous season, and we have to go to next season. So it, it's not Klopp. It's not. A call to arms as such I don't you know and, and that's not going to define him necessarily but I think that that has jumped out to people Rob where were you on that front? Yeah I'm, I mean we were well aware that before he, he arrived that his English wasn't as um, as developed I suppose as, as the likes of you know Radnick or a Klopp or, mm. a, or a Guardiola I think it's important to say that you know you've played the first answer there by the end of the, the press conference he, he did feel a little bit more comfortable with his English and the answers did get slightly longer. He seemed a little bit more relaxed. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously United will hope that his English improves, you know, as it, as the job goes on, and, and it should do. Living in the country and dealing with these players every day, and, and you said there that it, you know, does it really matter that that um, in the way that he speaks to the press? Probably not. I guess the only issue there is if, if communication with his players becomes an issue. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why he's brought Steve McLaren in. Um, he's obviously someone that he knows very well from their time together in Holland. Um, and he is a good communicator. Um, obviously, he is an English speaker. It's his first language. It's yeah. a little bit different for him. Um, so I'm sure that will help. Um, but, you know, it's, it's it's such early days. That you, you can't really make judgments on that kind of thing. I can understand why some of the fans may look at that and go, well, that's a little bit underwhelming. But, um, you know, this is the, the first question to his first press conference. I think if we're... We're probably if we're having the conversation maybe in in a year's time, then then perhaps 
it's a bit more of an issue, but we'll just have to see how that goes. Results dictate everything. This is exactly. a, a complete irrelevance if things go well and if things go badly, it'll be uh, pointed to. McLaren is probably a very good choice in that respect. Um, good communicator and will be a good go-between, actually. Yeah, that, that in some respects explains the McLaren uh, choice a touch more. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's it's a really important role. Um, you know, obviously, they again, they, they know each other very well. Um, they, they will trust each other. Communication is is a, a massive part of football. You know whether it's you know on the touchline or in the dressing room, and, and Steve will help with that. Also, you know the mood of, of the dressing room at the moment is absolutely on the floor. Um, you know there there are divisions between players. The the mood has been described as toxic, um, and Steve is is such a likable character that I think there's there's a lot of people at Old Trafford that really think that that he will be able to help in that respect. He's a go between between the players. And Eric Ten Hag, he'll be the one that the, the players come to if there are issues or if there's something that Eric needs to tell the players, that he will be the one to deliver that message. And um, I think it's quite a smart appointment. Um, yeah. You know, obviously some people will look at that and go, oh, you know, we're we're trying to recreate the days of Fergie because he was an assistant in, in the treble year and stuff. But I don't think it's anything to do with that. I think it's a quite a smart appointment really on, on the club's um, behalf and, and also on Eric Ten Hag's behalf. Rob, I'm sure you are uh, getting all different kinds of versions of what's going on in that dressing room. Uh, working this beat on a regular basis. Uh, you, you mentioned there the divisions between the players. Is there a particular issue or fault line on which the division or divisions are based on? Or w- what is going on in there? No, I don't think there's anything particular that you could point to. I think it's a symptom of, of a club and a team that have not played well. Um, you know, these divisions don't exist when the team are winning week in, week out. Um, when you're losing and when you've had a season as poor as Man United, fingers start to be pointed. There's, there's blame passed around. There are people unhappy that they're not playing and, and maybe um, have fallen down the pecking order behind players that they don't believe should be playing every week. Um, it, it's a very slippery slope when when results are not going well and, and this mm. season has been shocking, really, from, from very early on. And, and it's just snowballed. It's... It, you know, it cost Ole Gunnar Solskjaer his job. Ralph Ragnick came in, um, and it and it hasn't improved. Um, you know, it's, the, these things tend to, to rectify themselves if things yeah. are going well. Um, a couple of good results, uh, and, you know, a, a good summer with a new manager, a manager that they they trust and believe in, and believe in his plan, and a good start to the season. We'll see all that disappear. Um, I think the, the the main problem is it's just been a, a shocking season for for everyone, really. Mm. Well, listen, I hope for your sake it improves. It was uh, an interesting season uh, last year. A defeat to Crystal Palace was such a fitting finale in many respects. Uh, Rob Dawson, Manchester United correspondent for ESPN. Thanks so much, Rob. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Rob Dawson there. And our football show coverage brought to you by Sky. Watch every UEFA Champions League and Europa League match live in BT Sport this season.